Happy December, everyone, and welcome to Marketing Live for Friday, December the 2nd, 2016. I'm your host, Rob Zinkin. I serve as Associate Vice President for Marketing at Indiana University. And designing the search experience is our focus today, and I'll introduce our guests shortly. But first, Marketing Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network, offering viewers direct access to the best and brightest minds in education and beyond. Live broadcasts allow viewers to share knowledge and participate in discussions around the most important issues in our industry. All episodes of Marketing Live are free and accessible in the video archives at higheredlive.com and in podcast format on iTunes. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. Thanks as well to Funnelback. Funnelback isn't just a search engine, it's a problem solver. Their team sees search as more than keywords and queries. Search is a powerful tool that can bring disparate data together in a transformative way. Learn how University College of London brought order to content chaos and improved the search user experience with Funnelback. We'll be tweeting out a link in just a minute. Also, today's live viewing experience is powered by Maestro, the premier marketing tech platform for broadcasters. All right, let's meet our guests, and thanks everyone for your patience as it took a few minutes to get us started this afternoon, but very excited about today's discussion and today's guest, starting with Dr. Tony Russell-Rose, founder and director of UX Labs, a research and design consultancy specializing in complex search and information access applications. Tony holds a PhD in artificial intelligence and a master's in cognitive psychology. He has published more than 70 scientific papers on search, user experience, and text analytics, and is co-author of Designing the Search Experience, the Information Architecture of Discovery. Tony, great to see you. Welcome to the episode. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. And thanks also to Will Noble for joining. He is part of the business development team for search technology at Funnelback, based in Seattle. He is based in Seattle. Before moving to the U.S., Will worked in the digital industry in London, also working for Funnelback. There he collaborated closely with institutions including the University of Oxford, the University of Cambridge, and others to develop search strategies resulting in increased conversions and the creation of seamless user journeys. So, Will, thank you for joining and nice to see you too. Uh, thanks, Rob. Nice to see you too. Great. Well, to begin, I know we have lots to, to talk about with designing the search experience, but I've gone through a little bit of your official bios, but I'd love to give viewers an opportunity to go beyond those bios just a little bit. So I'll ask if you could share something from your career path, from your professional journey, whether that's a specific experience or anything noteworthy that, that perhaps has had a lasting impact on you and your career. So Tony, I will let you kick us off. Um. Well, I, I probably uh, go right back to the start for that. Um, I, there's been such a lot of formative influences on my career. As you probably know from my background, I'm quite multidisciplinary in that I'm interested in uh, a whole bunch of subjects, all the way from user experience across to information science, information retrieval, across the linguistics and uh, text analytics. And there's been lots of people who've shaped that influence. But I think one thing that has been a common thread throughout my career is that interest in the human element? And that stems actually from, I originally did an engineering degree, but I did it at Nottingham University in the UK. And uh, that's one of the centers for human factors. And uh, 
I still have a very fond regard and the certificates up on the wall just in front of me from my days back at, at Nottingham. So I think my professors there uh, of human factors were the, the, the people who really sowed the seeds for so many things that I've uh, been interested in and pursued since. Yeah. Great. Great. Thanks, Tony. And how about Will? And welcome again to the US, by the way. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Uh, it's an yeah, interesting question. Um, I think it's probably going to have to be um, a person for me. Um, it's actually one of my old um, colleagues over in, over in London. I think he was um, an old manager of mine. He probably personified the uh, lead by example management style. Um, and, and so not that, just you know, an inherent um, enthusiasm about the concepts, um, about what he does. Um, but also that drive and interest in just not just professional de development, but personal development. Um, and uh, he's a chap called Gordon Grace. And uh, when we meet someone like that, it's, you know, it can be kind of infectious to actually um, a great sort of person for me personally, um, really helps me with my self-motivation. Probably one of the reasons why I'm uh, talking to you now. Excellent. Well, as we take a look at this this topic in designing the the search experience and i'll go back to your your comments uh tony and in, in terms of the human element and i suppose that's probably the place where we should start and starting with the user is we should we should probably always do and certainly there there are individual differences in, in how people go about that and i know that you state that the expertise of you users varies on on a couple of dimensions in terms of domain expertise and technical expertise so if you could, maybe we could start there, and if you could dive into that a little bit in terms of those areas of uh, uh, two dimensions of expertise, what you mean by that, why it's important. Okay, so um, I think uh, I'd probably wind back just a little bit beyond that and say, um, I think it's important to uh, understand that with, with search, and particularly search in professional context, um, you know, there's lots of different ways in which users vary. Um, and so I think part of what I try to do is put a little bit of rigor around understanding the dimensions of that that variation. And as you rightly point out, I think um, you know if you if you study certainly the academic literature and, and you you, you uh, follow the best practice guidelines, I think it's important to recognise that um, uh, part two of those most important dimensions are the technical expertise and the domain expertise. Um, and essentially technical expertise means that you know how skilled and how comfortable people are with searching and that can you know vary uh, quite considerably in professional environments and of course domain expertise is what knowledge people have of the subject matter which is kind of independent of that because it may, it influences their ability to analyze and make sense of what they found and therefore formulate suitable appropriate follow-on search strategies and follow-on queries. And there are, there are recognized ways of measuring those two types of expertise. And you might find that, you know, in, your, in what you're trying to do with your search installation, you need to um, accommodate users across, uh, you know, that may be high in search expertise and high in tech, technical expertise or low on both dimensions. And I think that's an important part of the research process when you're designing a search experience is understanding where on that spectrum your users your users fall. Great. And as <clears throat> as we get an introduction to to this topic and, and talk about the dimensions of search uh, user experience, I, I want to talk about some of those other dimensions, mm -hmm. um, task and, and context and mode and perhaps moving next to, to task, and I, I assume that's a similar sort of discussion, or, or at least starting point, 
uh, as it is with users that 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 yeah. it varies with users and the task also varies. It could be uh, it could vary in scope, it could vary in complexity and in, in terms of what they want to accomplish. Absolutely, yeah. I mean this is one of the things where, you know, in the search community we can and rightly do borrow a lot of thinking and concepts and principles from what we call the HCI human computer interaction or human factors community and um, if you have worked in that community you recognize that you know the three pillars of user-centered design are that the user the the task and the environment which is like the the who the what and the where and moving on to the second one which you you've raised is the task of what they're doing and again part of your research phase before you design or build a search experience is understanding the full range of the tasks that your users need to undertake um, you know you may have anecdotal evidence that they're, they're doing certain things but you know there's there's lots and lots of good practice about trying to um, discover in a more principled manner the range of tasks that users are doing and, and uh, as you rightly pointed out they can range from you know very simple things like known item searches it's called finding a particular book or finding a particular part or a particular product to a, a much more complex or abstract problem of which search is just one element but a, a very crucial element nonetheless uh, and then there's a whole spectrum of other tasks search related tasks in between and again part of the secret to good design is is the research phase before you even start solutionizing is understanding where on that spectrum your your of of complexity of tasks your users are going to lie and then as we move on to to some of those other dimensions uh, how about context and and I, I really appreciate how you state that search is a is a conversation and if yeah. you can elaborate on that a bit yeah um, so two things I mean for, for let me just do the context one first so for context um, you know, again, that could be something relatively simple and transparent, like, you know, are they mobile or are they deskbound? What is their physical context? But there's also the organizational and social context as well. And then there's the context from, um, you know, an information assets point of view as well. What type of content are you trying to retrieve? So all those things are important. And overlaid on top of that is uh, the dialogue element. You know, I do like to talk about and think about search as a dialogue um, because most search tasks of any complexity are not resolved in a single query in a single set of results there is an iteration and just like with human dialogues there are certain rules that underpin successful dialogues and differentiate them from unsuccessful or dysfunctional dialogues and a lot of the things about you know communicate uh, dealing with ambiguity and uh, you know finding the specifics and clarifying uh, a user's intent exactly as we do in human dialogues they also apply to search dialogues as well, and, and, and I use those ideas to kind of shape and guide the design interventions that, that I use in the work that I do. Great, and in terms of then the, the modes of search and, and discovering, yeah. um, you know, I, I think, or at least myself, in, in some cases, you yeah. think of search and you may immediately just think of information retrieval, and yeah. you have framed that as a, as a much more holistic experience, and. Um, yeah. with with the distinct modes of search and discovery. Yeah, so that's the bit that we added on. If you think of it as, um, when I say we, I'm referring to myself and a few academic colleagues. I still do you know, some scholarly work, um, you know, amongst the co consulting work that I do. 
And if you think about us as having been of having uh, borrowed or reused, you know, principles from the the human factors community with the uh, the the use of the task and the, the the context, you know, the who, the what, and the where. We've added another layer on top of that because we recognise that what we're doing is applying those principles in a where um, it's a very information rich environment and people are problems uh, problem solving in information rich environments. We've kind of added an extra layer or extra dimension to that which we think of as the how. How are they going about the, the search that they're doing? And that's that's the fourth dimension that we've added where we've tried to find repeating patterns of search behavior. And we've done some empirical work and published it as a number of scholarly papers where we've, we've identified modes of search behavior and given them labels, you know, things like locating, verifying, monitoring, evaluating, synthesizing, analyzing. These repeating patterns of behavior that we've found in uh, across a number of engagements and we've given them uh, you know names and and tried to un uncover patterns of how they link together and we use that also in our design work well it, initially in the analysis work of understanding um, requirements but then in a generative sense for, for generating design solutions great and is there is there an example I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to bring the the those modes to life um, yeah. for viewers or listeners or something that that might come to mind in terms of laying yeah. out an example of how Absolutely. that okay think about Twitter what do we do we monitor most of the time we have um, you know TweetDeck or, or some other client and we monitor and then something comes up and uh, and we might want to verify who it is we'll open up their profile we'll verify who it is and then we'll evaluate do I want to follow this person do I want to look you know, pursue this tweet, you want to retweet this, and then we synthesize. You know, we, we follow up with our own tweet of our own. So even just if you look at this, a simple interaction with Twitter, you're seeing these modes, as we call, uh, uh, used across uh, throughout the whole site. Um, I, I mean, really, they're probably of greater value when you're designing complex business focused. Um, search applications like business intelligence, dashboards, and other you know complex search-based applications. But as a simple example, I think that most people relate to you know Twitter is a pretty good one. Great, and of course, I'm I'm eager to jump into some of the design implications and and how we could go about applying some of these insights, and of course how the the work yeah. that Will has done specifically with with some institutions. But uh, and I know this is a complex topic and there's a lot there, but is there any, yeah. any other baseline information before we do jump into some of the design implications that might be useful to, to touch on? Um, I, well, each, those four dimensions on their own, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I should really kind of segue straight into the book, but those four dimensions on their own that we just described, um, they're all like PhD topics in their own right. They're all career yeah. things in their own right. You know, understanding users is, is you know, right, the, the discipline of many, many, you know, psychology-oriented professions. Understanding tasks, that, that's kind of what business analysts do. And, um, you know, understanding context, again, is, is a huge topic in its own right. So I think um, each one of those, it's about more about really the depth, I guess, that you, how far you take each one. Um, and then understanding how they fit together, I think, is the other piece. 
because there's subtle interactions between them, which mean that, you know, um, you can't just assume that if you take one set of data from one dimension, another set of data from another, you just put them together and everything will be fine. You know, the, there are lots of complications in design um, trade-offs and subtleties that you need to take into account. If I just say, say just one other thing, I think sure. also with, with, with design um, and search design, it's a bit, a bit like chess, if this isn't too much of a cliche, in as much as I think you can um, understand the, the rules very rapidly, but understanding how and when to apply them, you know, takes takes uh, years of practice. So, yeah, that, that, that's one of the reasons why we wrote the book, is to try and distill that down into something that we could share. I mean, I think all of this stuff is, yeah, it's really interesting. There's what you've discussed about maybe for people listening to put some um, applicable stuff to this. When you say understanding the reason behind um, why someone's searching, um, if you're in a, in a higher education institution, you don't particularly have the time. And even, even what we discussed, just, just drawing out some broad scenarios of what people, um, where they were, what their background might be, what that user yeah. scenario is, what they might be searching for, and then you can actually generate those tasks, those search tasks, um, and what they're trying to look for. Um, and those those broad user personas can be a really good way to use just to understand the context of those queries mm. um, And then that can actually really drive what, what kind of relevant search features and um, What's going to be applicable we're going to discuss in a second um. Great and just a reminder yep. for, for viewers feel free to jump into the the conversation if you have a, have a question for Tony or for will uh, please tweet us using the higher ed live hashtag Okay, so some of these design implications then, where, where do we even begin with uh, <laughs> applying some of these insights? Oh, that's quite a tough one to answer because that, <laughs> that's a very visual thing. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how much I should talk about the book, but um, it, I don't know. Um, as an example, there are lots of good search books out there, I should point out. There's at least half a dozen that, um, you know, and we, we've stood on the shoulder of giants in what, in what we've done. Um, it, it's it, it's hard really for me to answer that, that that question, I guess, without talking about a specific scenario. I could talk about some of the, the disciplines involved. I think one thing, depending on, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the project involved, I think one thing to bear in mind is that, um, you know, not all design is the same. I think it's, um, it, it's very easy to kind of... Um, you know, to, to think that design is all about the, the colouring in bit, you know, the, uh, the visceral, the appearance. <clears throat> um, and I think one of the things that uh, more mature organisations now start to recognise is that design is a very, very multidisciplinary thing and that most of the best search applications that I've worked with have, have recognised that and have recognize that the skills in building the right information architecture are not the same as the skills in building the right interaction design and they're not the same skills or people as doing the right visual design and then there's another layer on top of that if you're doing a, a complex fasted search installation um, understanding how to deploy the right facets and where and how they should be uh, executed um, from a, a, a you know what, what widgetry you use and, and how they relate to each other and there's lots of nuances around faceted search that are almost what I would say the job of a business analyst to get right mm -hmm. not, not a designer at all 
so uh, I, I'm not sure if I really answered your question there, but um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if is that the sort of thing that you were you were thinking about. Yeah, and and don't don't be shy with the with the book by all means. That's okay, ample <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> well, again, as a um, you know, someone who's not in um, into this you know discipline on a on a regular basis, you know, some of the things that uh, that I found fascinating or were eye opening for me is just even just the the realization of all the different forms that that search results can take. Um, and so some of the implications from that standpoint, I thought were um, uh, at least thought provoking from from my standpoint. So I yeah. I know it, you can um, get into a lot of different areas, but just again from sort of a beginner perspective, that was uh, that yeah. uh, that was helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, well, should I just make one one very practical comment there? So I talked a lot, of what maybe in a more abstract level, but. Uh, for the search results page, just one example of the sort of things that make the design challenge difficult is the search page, search results page has to do two jobs, um, and they're both in conflict. The first job it has to do is is um, express to the user where they are in in, in the in the information landscape. So it needs to give you a sense of an overview of okay, I've landed in somewhere in this information landscape. What kind of stuff is here? Um, the first page of search results has to do that job. You know, especially if you've given a, an ambiguous query, it needs to give a sense of all the different interpretations of that query. But at the same time, the user needs to make relevance judgments. And to make relevance judgments, you need to have lots and lots of detail. So to do the first job properly, to give you that landscape, you need to make the results as small as possible and pack as many as possible on the page. But to do the second job properly, it's the opposite. You want to make the search results as big as possible. And it doesn't really matter how many you have on the page because a good you'd make ideally each each result the whole document and then you can make a complete relevance judgment. So that sort of thing, it you know, um, it, it's just one of the kind of tensions that is in the design of getting a search experience right, where you have to get the right balance between opposing forces. So does that give you a little concrete example of uh, some of the more abstract things that I've talked about? Yeah, it does. It does. And Will, you were going to jump in as well. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask Tony a question. When you, when you mentioned about um, the specific filtering, um, we, we've seen in the past is that um, sort of search filtering, when you said it's going to be the, the job of a business analyst to define what those filters are, we've seen that sort of been institutionally led, so there'll be some sort of ways to filter information that it's of no use to the actual end user at all, um, and based on a, a management or a company structure. Um, that people maybe not have any idea. So you could, you're trying to navigate people to these silos of information, but they don't yep. know what these areas might even associate with. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just to clarify my point, I, I don't think it's a business analyst's job necessarily to specify the requirements, but to interpret right. them and to execute them in such a way as they can hand off then to the designer to, to, to produce, to execute. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've seen so many fasted search implementations that are... Um, um, let's just say suboptimal, um, because they haven't had that investment of time and, and haven't had the rigor in the process in um, you know in executing them and, and doing the research up front in the right in the right way to yeah. to find out uh, you know um, what, what what kind of as the, as the four dimensions that we talked about what kind of users you're you're trying to serve and what tasks they're doing in mm. what context. Okay. And, and uh, as I've been learning, Tony, if um, 
if you could also share a little bit about uh, social search and, uh, and, and social search as more of an umbrella term. Yeah. Well, so social search isn't really kind of um, my main area of expertise. Um, it, it's 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 one of these things where um, we, we've we've articulated a view in the book um, based on our on our what you might call sort of practitioner experience as to one way uh, a way of thinking about you know different circles of engagement um, from from the user and their immediate team out to the wider uh, wider community. Um, but it's probably one of these things where uh, I think there's there are other experts in the academic community. I think you have probably a, a more um, nuanced view on that than I do. Okay, and and Will, as we, uh, I'd love to hear, uh, give you more of an opportunity to to share some of your uh, experiences and and how you have seen institutions benefit from considering UX and their search implementations and. Um, and, and how you've recommended search to be part of really any UX project or, or website and you can take us inside and an example and, and how that has evolved and ended up helping uh, helping a college or university. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there, you know, where any sort of search recommendations that we provide or that anyone, any um, consultant should provide should be based around the format of best UX, you know, that forms everything that you should do. You should be building, um, uh, or designing something based on what the institution wants or uh, desires, it should be a bit more about is this going to benefit the user. Um, but I think, yeah, I think where we've really helped is um, you know using search to to, uh, to to reduce you know dead ends and, and reduce that sometimes sticky navigation. Um, there's one, I think there's one in, um, institution uh, that comes to mind. It's the University of Arts based in London. Um, they're a fashion design institution. Um, and it's really not really one institution. It's it's six different colleges that make up the overall group. Um, and so you know you we sort of look at the look at the people that are using and accessing the information or looking for a particular degree or program or course, um, and they don't know which college that associates with. Um, but they'll be hitting a main um, uh, the main entry point page. Um, but you need to know, we use search as a, as a tool to make sure that all of that information is easily discoverable, uh, no matter where it lies. Um, and that's, you know, that, that includes you know, having a search that captures all the information, like Tony said, but then you also want to be able to refine that information once you know a bit more about their, their actions and the tasks they want to, um, want to um, carry out. Um, so actually, what we ended up what we ended up implementing is that you have a global search. We also actually allow bespoke search endpoints that focus on a particular user persona. So be that an, a new student looking for information on courses, and then you can actually generate uh, custom search filters or um, advanced auto completion based on that user user persona. Um, and then we've also you know we ended up I think we've ended up creating sort of three or four bespoke search endpoints that you want to, you can direct those different user groups towards after they first en um, entered the website. Um, and I think actually one of the big successes, they had a, they have a scholarships program, this institution, um, eight or so different scholarships, um, all sort of data around the different on uh, piece of information, all in either list views at the moment. Um, and there's lots of different conditions for eligibility, so the year of entry, um, what college they're currently uh, studying at, for instance, um, and, and the uptake on these scholarships was particularly low because they, it, was, it was hard to engage with that content. 
Um, so what we did is we used the, the model of you know search and discoverability um, to put this to these to these scholarship pages. Um, so allowing um, the users to be able to define requirements that are relevant to them and also make it searchable. Um, and it had a, a fantastic increase. I think it was a was it a fifty seven percent increase in page views um, from the previous period um, the year before. Um, and it's you know, using search as a way to really engage users with that information, um, and you know, using it as a, as, a, as a great way to improve that customer experience and uh, shorten that user journey. Because I mean, the end goal for, for search and for any of these um, things we've been discussing is to get people to that quality content that you're writing. Um, and as a, when you can sort of implement some of the things that Tony's been um, Tony's been talking about, it can be really valuable. Yeah, when I, I'm interested to hear more about some of your experiences with colleges and universities because I, I think of the higher ed landscape and and in some cases the siloed approach within institutions and and you know, a decentralized school with with colleges and departments and schools uh, institutes centers all these elements that that make up a a university and and you know you you could be on different planets within an individual uh, university website. And often this um, very organization-centric approach when we use terminology, whether that's Office of the Registrar or who knows what, that is meaningful internally but may not be as meaningful to, um, to the, the end users. And so in, in your experiences with, with schools, are there some common pitfalls or, or patterns that you have, that you have noticed that uh, higher ed in general needs to um, enhance its game uh, to to really serve uh, to really serve individuals better. Well, I think yeah, that I think in the past, and yeah, institutions aren't going to change. They're going to speak in their language that suits them, and academics are going to write um, fascinating pieces or research um, research papers based around that concept. But it's really I think what we're trying to see now. It's going to be the job of the institutions marketing department to use search and other areas to. Um, to direct, um, direct their, their, their user base to that information um, using tools such as you know, synonyms. Um, I, know, I know Tony could talk about this at great length, or, or you know, people, people searching perhaps acronyms or certain content searching that way. Um, but using search as a tool to, to, to mitigate that, that, that content and the way it's written like that, to, um, to use it as a tool to, to promote the information that you want them to see. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it's, no one's going. Not many people search for mathematical science, for instance. You know, they just have math. You know, but if you have no content that's doing that, um, you need to create rule sets and and use it, use it, use it, use search to make sure that that information is discoverable. Um, actually, I think one of the um, that Tony worked on um, closely was with, um, with that when you talk about a federated environment. Um, is uh, University College London. I think Tony was very integral in the um, in the actual search design part of uh, of, of that project, which is um, driven. Um, I think they, they have millions and one or two million different records, all in different different locations, um, all completely decentralised. As, as you mentioned, no one manages. Um, there is no ma one management of that content, um, and uh, perhaps only can describe how how they went about. Um, overcoming that challenge of research. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Will. Um, 
a lot of it was a bit like the wild west lots and lots of different sites um most were not managed uh, actively managed lots of legacy stuff um yeah and, and lots of different types of content as well so um so part of that piece was was doing the content audit um and trying to understand uh the the, the information landscape um, and trying to understand which um, which sites we're going to need to be in, uh, i.e. in scope, and also to to for the design to come up with um, you know approaches that were going to scale if the data was was not clean uh, or was or was noisy. So that that really shaped how we went about um, uh, the, the the faceted search design. Um, what kind of facet values we would expose and what kind of facets we could rely on and also what the fallback would be if uh, you know if we had data coming into the system which which didn't which just wasn't populated for the facets that we were trying to expose to the end user um, and um, yeah and also thinking about how to expose the different content types to the user because if you've got you know a, a query that can match documents or research papers or video or audio or something else you know you you could bung all those on a single search results list but it was felt that um you know they were sufficiently different that um users would want to be able to filter them separately by by content type so again that shaped the way we went about the design and um i'm sure you can see it on on ucl uh, uk now um it allows you to filter by different content type and it allows you to um, drill down and find associative links between these different content types. So yeah, that was quite a challenge. Um, a highly federated site and lots and lots of noisy data. I was going to see if you were going to jump in, Will. There, I, I wanted to make sure uh, before I forget. I I also touch on or ask you about cross-channel information interaction and. As I think about the the website work that, that our team does for the institution uh, here at Indiana University, and it's whether it's for uh, a campus or a school, and it's not just we're not just building responsive websites. We're truly building mobile first websites, and and the data is really powerful about um, prospective students searching for uh, as part of their college search process and, and the use of mobile. And so um, I'm I'm curious to hear more, Tony, in terms of how we. Um, how we think about a more coherent uh, cross-channel experience for users um, and, and how we can design a more coherent uh, cross-channel experience um, because that is more and more relevant, obviously. Yeah, that's right. Well, as you point out, I think a lot of that is um, can be accommodated by um, considering and adopting the principles of responsive design. Um, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of the, a lot that can be done um, simply by recognizing the different form factors and understanding how best to facilitate a search and discovery appearance uh, experience across these different form factors. But I think the other thing that that goes beyond just that uh, responsive design best practices is also thinking about joining the dots, such that um, you know if you're halfway through a search session. Uh, on one device mm. or you're halfway through saving uh, you know your list of favorite courses or your list of favorite papers on one device you know on the next device you can pick up from where you left off 
uh, and that, that that experience is joined up across different devices and that's particularly true also for for e-commerce as well where we know that you know shoppers will do their research offline and then go in store and then perhaps do comparisons in store so it, it is truly a multi-channel experience and also i don't know if you wanted to talk about futuristic things as well but i think those channels are slightly being blurred these days because we're going beyond um you know just a simple uh, what form factor is it you know smartphone tablet or desktop into what is the interaction model anyway and i think uh, I, one of the things I think that's going to change the search space is also, um, you know, the rise of chatbots and the, the application of AI. And I think that's that's going to change things quite considerably. Yes, I was absolutely going to ask about that and, and yeah. what you see uh, lying ahead and, and even in your own work and, and research interests and mm -hmm. what you get more, more most excited about and thinking about the future and um, in terms of some unexplored areas. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I've I've been in the search industry for a good couple of decades, and I've seen trends come and go, and they do, they come and go. Um, and so I'm, you know, I have a healthy skepticism about these things. Um, the, and as I mentioned, chatbots and AI are both very hot at the moment. So I often ask myself this question, will they still be hot in two years' time? I mean, they'll probably still be hot in a year's time, but two years, I don't know. Um, but what I do think is that um, we are seeing a migration in search from users giving queries and returning document, receiving documents to um, question answering and more broadly conversations. So if we just think about question answering first, then yeah, absolutely, there are there are all sorts of chatbots and people talk about you know the app economy being replaced by the chatbot economy and. Yeah, there's no doubt that a lot of interactions that are search-related could be better facilitated by a conversational-style interaction. Not all of them. There's lots of complex um, tasks uh, that are more analytical where you'll need a screen and you always will need a screen. But a lot of these kind of information exchange, information search tasks, you know, um, can be facilitated, so in some cases, better via a conversational style of UI. Um, but this is where the AI bit comes in, because if we want to deliver um, a dialogue, a search, a, a search dialogue, as in the natural language sense, that, that is truly flexible and robust and um, smart enough to deal with anything other than beyond just trivial search inquiries, then we're going to need much cleverer back ends and much cleverer uh, algorithms. Uh, and that's where the machine learning and AI comes in. And, you know, a lot of progress has been made over the past, um, particularly the past few, so, you know, few years, you know, two, three, four years. Um, there's been some quite significant advances. And a lot of this is becoming fashionable and mainstream now. And I do think attitudes are changing as well, you know, in the same way as, when tablets came out, it raised the bar for our professional applications and search applications that we have in the workplace. You know, we wanted to bring devices to work. We wanted the same quality of experience to, to be applied to our professional tools. I think the same thing will happen with things like chatbots, that we'll get used to them as leisure devices, and we'll get used to Alexa in the home and Siri on the phone and all the rest of it, and we'll want to have that same quality of experience and quality of dialogue 
in the workplace for our professional tools as well and, and search is going to be at the heart of that because it's so conversational in its nature i i think we're, what we're seeing as well in from not so much in the future but now is using search as a form to target your conversational bots on a university mm -hmm. website so for instance um as a search user makes a search query on a website and then you follow what that's what they've clicked on follow at that and then you can use that to identify okay these people maybe the, They've searched for this, they've clicked on this, they're probably in the wrong place. And then you can actually use those search analytics to target, you know, pop ups, say, you know, um, you know, have you found what you're looking for? Perhaps you need to be looking yeah. at it. And using that kind of information, that can be quite valuable, especially. Yeah, so, yeah I think that's, that's one of the key research questions is these things are going to live in an ecosystem. You know, bots won't replace search, and, you know, yeah. search won't replace. Uh, anything else these things will all work together and it's back to I suppose what what you were saying Rob about the um, you know cross-channel experience the cross channels won't be across devices so much but across um, interaction um, elements you know switching between the chat bot and switching between the applications and, 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 the, and the search box or, or the search results page these things all have to move together so I think they'll all need to talk to each other in some way, um, and and that is where I think is um, you know where the cross-channel experiences of the future are going to lie. And, and Will, as you hear um, some of those thoughts in terms of a, an outlook from from Tony, are there are there other implications for for higher education um, in in any of those areas beyond the ones that, that you just touched on? Um, no, I think I think we covered everything. I think um, I think when you talked about yeah, different um, different cross cross channel in terms of different devices. You know, search is going to become much more of a primary form of navigation. Um, people are less and less going to be interested in using um, navigating their way through through the links. Um, and you know, as long as a um, no, I think higher education may be a bit slow, less fast up in the uptake is maybe an e-commerce environment or um, um, other areas. Um, so just making sure that you know, you're you're thinking about what um, you know, what, what are my user personas? Um, what are the dead ends? You know, identify those sticking points, um, and making sure that you know there is a, there is a loop round. Um, I think we're seeing it. You know, it's maybe searches becoming beyond just the actual search results page, using it to, to recommend relevant content, um, not just you know not just a final course detail page, and using search to provide relevant recommended results, recommended items of content, but also across your whole portfolio. So if someone's Looking at a particular area, you can actually use search to display information from relevant blogs or um, social feeds or whatever is that. So really, using it to what we call sort of search-powered content um, is, I think, that's where it's going to be um, really interesting in the next next two three years. Great, and Tony, for uh, for those who are intrigued, interested, and and want to learn more, where can they uh, where can they follow you? How do they what, what resources might you recommend? Um, obviously, we know about the book, that that, and, and any other resources that you might point listeners to. Um, so from a social media point of view, um, well, I, if I do myself first, I'm on Twitter as Tony GRR, um, and on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, for resources, I guess it would be events. We we run a whole bunch of. I you know I'm vice chair of the BCS Information Retrieval Specialist Group, and um, we actually just ran a, an event in London just two days ago, 
um, uh, and we've got another event um, coming up uh, early next year. So have a look at if you go if you search for BCS Information Regional Specialist Group, you'll find a ton of stuff um, that we do. Um, and um, yeah, uh, oh, there's just so, so much stuff out there. And have a look at my blog. There's a there's a whole section there on uh, other resources as well. Um, so yeah, <laughs> lots of stuff out there. Great, and I know we're, we're getting to the top of the hour, but I will want to give you the opportunity as well. Any other work that you wanted to highlight or or touch on, because I know you're you're engaged in some really uh, really interesting and fascinating work. Um, well, I'm not going to go into too much detail today, but you know, please do get in touch with me if you want to hear more about how we've helped um, some higher education institutions. Um, you know, we've seen that you know in a fast, effective search is. You know, is it, one, it reduce your search exits, it improve that, um, the way that users engage with that information. Um, and, you know, at this, you know, the time on your site can increase. If you have a positive experience and you're finding information that you find useful, um, that is a great way of, of driving improvement. And we've actually seen it, um, got some instances where this has improved on, actually increased the, the level of enrollment. You know, people are making a X amount of $1,000 worth of decision. Um, and making sure that people can make an informed and, and fast decision um, is, is paramount towards that. Excellent. Well, Tony and Will, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. It's been quite enlightening, and in some way, I feel like we just we just scratched the surface. Um, but really appreciate you sharing, both of you sharing your time and expertise today. Okay, no problem. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. And as always, thank you to M. Stoner for making Marketing Live possible. Be sure to get reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can browse, browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm Rob Zinkin. A reminder, we'll have an episode coming up on December the 15th and do a recap of the annual AMA Symposium for the Marketing of Higher Education. So. Thanks again for tuning in to Marketing Live today on the Higher Ed Live Network.